If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 through 20. Isaiah 41, 1 through 20. If you're using the Bible provided for you in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page 764, I think. 763, 764, somewhere in there. I can narrow it down to two. Uh, 764. I think being able to narrow it down to two in a book that has like 1,500 pages is pretty good. Um, I'm told 764. 764. All right. Would you pray with me? Actually, let's, let's read the passage and then we'll pray. Let's do that. Got ahead of myself there. Isaiah 41, verses 1 to 20. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, the prophet Isaiah writes the following. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east? Whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him. So that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good! And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, All who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, 
and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. Let's pray. God, we ask for you to illuminate your word to our hearts this morning. We ask that you would meet us, the fears that we carry, the questions that burden our hearts. Illuminate us to see your sufficiency in Christ, the victor over sin and death, the hope of our souls, the one to whom we trust in and the one in whom we will pray and we will serve as he builds his church. It is in his name we pray and through him we hope and by him we ask these things. Amen. The cello is a fascinating instrument. I don't know if we have any, is it cello, cello, celloists, cellists? I don't know. I'm not a musical guy. I do, okay, dad joke incoming. I do, uh, my musical capabilities have been compared to prison singing before. Some of you know what this is. Behind a few bars looking for a key. There you go. All right, no more dad jokes. I say this because I don't know what I, I, I don't know anything about playing the cello. I don't know much about the cello. I think I could picture one in my mind, and maybe you could picture one in your mind as well. But this week I was moved by a cello. I was listening to some classical music as our classical music channel on YouTube. I'll take their word that it was classical. Once again, I'm not an expert. But there was this song that was largely played had backup music but a cello was playing out in it and I'm listening I'm writing sermon as I'm listening to this it it literally started to move me to the point where I was on the verge of tears maybe you've had moments like that before where a song uh comes on the radio or a song pops on your phone or something and, and it moves you in ways that you did not quite expect stirring the heart stirring emotions in unique and powerful ways. That's what happened to me this week as I worked on a sermon and listened to the cello. But the cello doesn't do that for us if it just sits in the corner, unplayed, unlistened to. Today we're going to look at this concept of fear And whether or not we can trust God. But what I want to hold up before you is that the promises of God for his people in the midst of their fears, they do no good for us if they are kept off to the side, only for us to observe and 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 remark as if they're furniture in the room, like somebody you don't decorate your house with a cello, but as if it's kept off to the side. 
But when the music of the gospel begins to play, we can find that it can move our hearts to be able to trust him with our deepest fears. Do you hear the music of the hope of the gospel this morning? Particularly, what I want to argue from Isaiah 41, 1 to 20, is that God is sovereign over world events. And we can trust him with our fears. God is sovereign over world events. Over your world and your events. And you, we can trust him with our fears. In verses 1 through 7, we see that God is sovereign over world events. If you recall, a theme throughout this section of Isaiah is the continued reminders for the people of Judah. This is the southern kingdom of Israel who had been taken into exile in Babylon. These reminders that yes, they could trust God and they could by faith receive His promises of comfort for their hearts. What they needed to hear might be something that you and I need to hear. And that is that the comfort of God for His people carries no expiration date. And no matter how far away the child of God feels he or she is, he or she is not beyond the reach of His compassion. And as we enter into Isaiah 41, God is going to illustrate for his people how he is sovereign over world events, but he's going to do this in a unique way through an offer of mercy for those who do not yet know him. This is an offer of mercy for Gentiles, people who are non-Jews. This room, us gathered here today, today is probably largely, if not even entirely, Gentiles. In this time in the Old Testament, God's people, the, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, as this audience here, they were being held captive by Gentiles. In verse 1, God says to me, how do we know it's Gentiles? We'll look at verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands, and let the peoples renew their strength. That language, O coastlands and peoples, implies people outside his covenant people of Israel. And then the phrase here, renew their strength. Listen to me, let the peoples renew their strength. This is the same as the assurance that God gave his people at the end of Isaiah 40. Back in verse 31, just one verse up in your Bibles. They who wait for the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. God makes the same offer of mercy to all who would hear them. In fact, if you are not a Christian and for whatever reason you are hearing this today, Do not overlook verse 1. Did you know that the Bible is not just for people who have a particular intellectual insight or religious background? God regularly addresses those who do not know Him. Or perhaps those who even feel little use for Him. And He extends an invitation to enter into His grace no matter where your heart and where your life may be the offer to renew their strength comes by first understanding how the world is governed namely god rules over the world as we see in verses two through four you see verse two who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step the who there at the beginning of verse two is god so he's asking this audience 
He's going to describe the actions of a ruler who's going to come into prominence, who's going to increase in power, but only the Lord's yet mysteriously clear direction would bring this about. God raises up presidents and prime ministers. He raises up dictators and warlords. Nations rise and fall, and what God has for His people, what God has for you, for us, dear church, is the promise that though His people may appear to be twisting in the wind of world events at times, what He's showing us here is that He is the one who controls the wind. In fact, look at verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. Next time you vote in a town election, or a midterm election, or a presidential election, or anything in between, remember that God raises up governmental leaders in accord with His divine wisdom. He doesn't just reveal his sovereignty over the events of the world, but like an x-ray on a human heart, he reveals the state of the heart of those who will come to him or not. And so the invitation before each of us now is to make the ask of the question of, will I hear this offer of mercy? The temptation is to reject that offer of mercy For the sake of the gods that are more comfortable to our hearts. Verse 5, he says, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. So this is outside of his people. As far as the coast, as far as the ends of the earth, they're afraid, they tremble, they have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil. You see what they're doing here, this imagery here, these, these, these craftsmen, goldsmiths, these, these, these uh, men with tools of the trade, they're, they're, they're building an idol that they can place their trust in. And as a sad echo to the creation account from Genesis, they say of the soldering, they say of the idol that they have built, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What verses 1 through 7 show us is the striking truth that, yes, God is sovereign over world events. He's in control. He's worthy of trust and praise of all figures under his rule to the ends of the earth. Yet it also reveals to us that our human condition is one that we would rather build our own houses of cards and trust that they can survive the hurricane of God's mighty wind. We would rather do that than trust in and take refuge in the fortress of his sovereign love. Maybe that's a question to ask yourself this morning. What are the idols that I build out of the, that are nothing really but a house of cards? And why do I refuse to take refuge in the fortress of his love? Yes, as we think about idols, we... We don't build idols of wood or metal or of gold as one might picture in our minds from a primitive religion relegated to the history books or to third world cultures on the other side of the planet. If I may be so bold, I believe the most dangerous idol that we toy with is not one that we would maybe build with a goldsmith and a blacksmith or anything of that sort, but it's 
a dangerous idea or idol that we simply Christianize the idols of our own hearts. We camouflage our most earnest desires in Christian terminology and virtue to the point that we have a hard time distinguishing them from true Christianity. Allow me to give you two examples. There are probably a boatload of them that we could employ, but allow me just to give you two. And I'm mainly doing these to illustrate how we can sometimes Christianize our own idols. These two examples are our families and our freedom. This sermon is brought to you by the letter F. I hope it's not an F. You might say it's an F after these next few moments. The Bible teaches us that our families are a gift from God. But what we can do is we can take this gift, like any gift, and make it our God. Understandably, our culture places some of its highest values on loyalty to family. We say things like family first. And for how virtuous this sounds, it can be troublesome to our souls if it causes us to depart from worshiping our God. If our time is so devoted to our family that we regularly miss gathering with the saints for worship, that is dangerous to our souls. If our hearts are so anchored to the success of our children or our grandchildren that we are more concerned with their academic or professional accomplishments than with the good of their souls, then what are we sacrificing to this idol? In fact, Jesus himself warned his followers that loyalty to one's family that triumphs over obedience to him is not something to be applauded. Rather, it's an idol to be warned against. Remember the shocking language that he used when a man said to him, "Uh, Master, I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my own father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Look, families are a gift to us. Make no mistake about it. But if we are not careful, we can love those whom God has given to us so fiercely that though we might Christianize it and make it sound virtuous, It reveals that our hearts are far from Christ and we're just simply trying to use Christ for the service of this other idol. Think of idolatry. Well, well, hold on. Let's get to the second one here and then I'll give this illustration. So first, this is idol of our family. Secondly, our idol of our freedom. And I don't mean solely like, like freedom as Americans, like singing God Bless America, Lee Greenwood, all of that. But I mean, the, 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 the more think of this like closely held virtue that we celebrate of, of, of self-determination. And so it's this unchallengeable sense of self-autonomy. What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. And you cannot challenge that. You cannot push against that. And the danger is that this is that that, that we, we we champion our, our freedom, our self autonomy, our our our, our 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 individual rights to the point where we slowly start to believe and we Christianize this to the point where it becomes pervasive that we think God is responsible for blessing the plans and the goals and the aims and the desires of our lives. It's like I lay out the roadmap and God is responsible for driving the car there. As opposed to recognizing that God lays out the road map and that he drives us there. God's responsibility is not to make any of our dreams come true. In fact, God's in the business of crucifying the lies of our dreams in order that we might find him to be the all-consuming sinner around which our lives orbit in delight in him. 
You see, the danger when we consider our freedom and our future and all that we desire for ourselves and trying to live in accord with the American dream and all the blessings of prosperity and freedom that we have, and we ought to thank God for them, but the danger in allowing them to become our master is that the future that we cherish becomes the master we are enslaved to. And so how do we understand good things like freedom and rights and family How do we understand these in light of not making them idols that we just Christianize? Well, think of it as if we're putting on a pair of glasses. We can either put on the glasses of obedience to and following Christ, where he's the one through which in my life submitted to his rule and his reign over me, I, 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 I am wearing these glasses, and so now my relationships with my family, my relationships with others, my desires for my future, my desires for my children's future, my desires for my, for my, for my job, all of these things are, 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 are understood through the lens of seeing Christ and His work within me and His glory over me. Whereas opposed to, if we're not careful, we can put on blinders of these things that we seek to serve in regards to whether it is our family, our freedom, or anything else. That Christ and the gospel does not become something where we see these rightly. It actually becomes something that competes for our attention. And we drown out. Look at verse 5. Again, And let me show you something crucial for understanding our hearts as relates to worship and idolatry. Look at verse 5. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. Do you see that? They're afraid, they tremble. And so what do they then go do in verses 6 and 7? They go build idols. Do you realize that the idols of our hearts are born of our deepest fears? The question that ultimately rests on us is one of if I'm is is, um, am I going to believe that God is sovereign over world events and over my life? And if I do believe this, how can I know that I can trust him with everything that he calls me to surrender to him? Is he able to handle these things that require my obedience, that require my trust? If God is going to make bold claims of me and of His sovereignty over me, then He better be able to handle everything that I worry about and I carry on a day-by-day basis. That's ultimately what we're getting at. And understandably, this produces fear in us. So now we see in verses 8 to 20, what do we do with our fear? That true worship and devotion and obedience asks of us. Verses 8 to 20, we see that we can trust him with our fears. Once again, what I'm arguing for you from this text is that God is sovereign over world events, so we can trust him with our fears. If we see he's sovereign over world events in verses 1 through 7, now we see we can trust him with our fears in verses 8 to 20. The first indication that we can trust him with these fears is verse 8. It's this reminder that we belong to him. But look at the difference here. Instead of being an idol that we have built of our own hands or out of the desires of our own heart, the script is flipped and we find that we have been created, rescued, and redeemed by God. He has built and established us. Look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. 
What we see in verse 8 is that God takes the initiative in pursuing us. Let's pause on these descriptions that God makes of those who are his people. My servant, whom I've chosen, my friend. There is a profound wonder to this idea that God would place his hand upon you and upon me. That he might rescue us from our sin, our rebellion against him, and bring us to himself. What the Bible shows us is that there's a people whom God has set his love on, dating all the way back to eternity past, before they ever loved him. And his love for them, his love for us, his people whom he's brought to faith in himself, is so determined that God the Father and God the Son made a covenant of redemption that the Son, Jesus Christ, willingly went to the cross at the time of which God the Father ordained. He was sent to redeem these people whom the love of God had been marked out for. And he did so resolved to pay the penalty of his life in order that the torrent of God's love might break through the dam of our human sinfulness and our hard-hearted idolatry. And in that torrent, in in, in those flowing rivers of his love, that we might be swept away And carried to the highest mountaintops of his heart. Do you see this? My servant whom I have chosen. And then at the end of verse 8 there, my friend. The stunningly spectacular thing about the gospel. Is that God has set his love on such unspectacular people as you and I. Let me say that again. We all could use a little humbling, myself included. The stunning, spe- stunningly spectacular thing about the gospel is that God has set his love on such unspectacular people as you and I. God did not lose a bet. He and Satan did not some pl- play some cosmic schoolyard game where they picked teams and you and I were the last ones chosen after, truly, after the truly impressive people were already snatched up. God chose you to be a recipient of His grace because of His love for you. And Christian, He has made you His friend. Did you know that when you pray, when you cry out to God, when your heart yearns in uncertainty and fear, He does not look at the caller ID and think to Himself, oh no, not Him again. The heart of God towards you Dearly redeemed Christian is not one of dismay, but of delight. It is not one of regret, but rejoicing. And then he meets us with the spectacular promises of verses 9 and 10. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners... Saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think it's no accident 
that before giving this charge to fear not, which he gives three times between verses 10 and 20, before giving this charge to fear not, he reminds us of the resolve of his love and his commitment to us. He doesn't say fear not, it's true. The, the intellectual claims of Christianity are philosophically sound and true, of which they are. But he doesn't say, don't believe it, or he doesn't say believe this because it's intellectually superior to everything else. He doesn't say don't believe or, or believe this because you're strong and, and you have it within you to withstand the trials that you are going to face and the things that would induce fear in your hearts. He says, no, fear not and be not dismayed for I am your God. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What do you need to be upheld in the midst of today? What fear grips your heart? We're going to have the hope of being rightly oriented towards God, to trusting in Him. Then everything rests on the fears of our heart. Remember verse 5, idolatry is born out of fear. And now in verse 10, God lays it wide open and He says, fear not. From this exhortation to fear not, we get further elaboration on why we don't have to fear. Three things, verse 11 to 13, we don't have to fear hostility from outside of the church. That's 11 to 13. In verses 14 to 16, we see we don't have to fear in the midst of or in spite of our own personal weaknesses. And in verses 17 to 20, we see we do not have to fear in spite of or whatever our circumstances are. Let's look at these, verse 11 to 13 first. We do not have to fear hostility from outside the church. Look at verses 11 and 12. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. as if God is saying the big bad boogeyman who's outside the doors, whom you fear, whom you, keeps you up at night, who, who terrorizes your heart with worry. And, and he's saying, in me you will walk outside and you will not find him. For we, he will have fled. The list of those outside of the church who have sought her destruction is layered and long across history. History tells us of monarchies. And even of the Catholic Church of the 16th century that sought to silence the Protestant Reformation as it began. It gives us a story of reformers hiding for their lives while translating the Bible into the native tongue of the uneducated masses. And some of these reformers, yes, they would pay with their lives. Yet the praise of God was on their lips as the fire of the word of God spread far more rapidly than the fires that would burn them at the stake. History tells us of faithful Christians, sometimes hiding for their lives, crowded together and worshiping in dark basements at 2 a.m. to escape the watchful eye of totalitarian atheistic regimes who could not handle Christians of their nations, who rejoiced in a citizenship that was anchored to the promises of heaven and not the lies of this regime. 
Today, we receive newsletters and updates from missionaries serving our brothers and sisters in Muslim-dominated regions of the world, where the call of the gospel carries a warning that obedience to Christ and following Him will almost certainly mean abandonment from your family, the loss of your job, and perhaps even the need to run for your life. Yet Christ builds His church. And these stories I've shared with you, they're not stories of the end of the church. They're stories of vain attempts to silence and destroy the people of God. Yet the sovereign hand of God over the nations reveals that the church marches on while kings and kingdoms pass away. In our day, we face chastisement and eye rolls on the part of those who believe differently than we do on matters of sexuality, of God's creation and design for marriage, of human beings created male and female in the image of God. And we do not have to fear. Brothers and sisters, we are not promised a smooth journey void of relational hardship or even something as difficult as job loss. But we are promised that though the world can take away our jobs or our status in society, it cannot touch our souls and it cannot take away the hope of the gospel that is ours. When your heart fears a world that seems more and more out of step with the Christianity that you profess. Take heart in verse 13, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Secondly, we don't have to fear our own personal weaknesses in verses 14 to 16. Sometimes our greatest fear is not what we see outside of us, but it's what we see inside of ourselves. Perhaps you're acutely aware of your own limitations. You know the black marks on your family background. Perhaps you know the mental illness that you struggle with today. Perhaps you know the physical limitations that hinder or haunt you. You know the way that you seem to always be stumbling over your words. That loved one, that neighbor that asked you a hard question about the Christian faith that you profess. And the good news is that a, a solid, sound answer came to your mind. The bad news is it came to your mind a week after they asked you. And you only stumbled over your words in that conversation. Listen to your Lord in verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. There's a familiar message here, but what do you do with you worm in verse 14? That's a term of endearment, right? What he's doing is he's speaking of the transforming power of his grace at work in his people. He doesn't call somebody a worm in verse 14 only after calling them his friend just a few verses prior. He's saying, you may think that you are a worm, but look at what I'm making you in verses 15 and 16. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. From worm to threshing sledge that turns the world upside down, this is quite a transformation, is it not? But what does this mean? Does God transform His people into the world's foremost fighting force that are literally going to destroy the world? 
No, I don't think that's what he gets is getting at. I think what he's getting at is, is that the worship of his people will do nothing less than turn the world upside down. More particularly, the worship of his people uh, when we are turned upside down by him, by awareness of the gospel and the depths of his love for us, will be a transforming force in our world that does not know him. Look at the end of verse 16. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel You shall glory. This promise of transformation that the Lord does in the lives of His people is not like a diet ad that you see on TV at 2 a.m. while you eat chips in uh, in a state because you can't sleep at night. It's not something that flashes across your Facebook page with somebody who says, here's what I looked like at one point and now see the new me 90 days later. No, what I believe that Isaiah is revealing it to us is that God transforms our hearts to be able to actually trust Him with our deepest fears. He puts our hearts in line with the things that we profess in Bible study when we don't want to look as if we don't have enough faith. He puts our hearts in line with the songs that we sing that sound as if uh, our faith is a lot more robust than it really is. What the God does by the power of the gospel is He strengthens us Not on the outside in, but from the inside out. This is where the beauty of God's promises over the course of time and for all of eternity, they water the parched roots of our hearts. As we give careful thought to, as we meditate closely upon the gospel and the promises that it holds for us, that God has set me apart, that God has made me his own, that he calls me his friend, that he has pursued me in his love, that he has taken my sin and removed it as far as the east is from the west, that he is near to me in the tumult of life, and that he will bring me to himself when all is said and done. Think about these permeating your thoughts and permeating your prayers as you face all that life throws against you. And as this happens, he waters the seed of your heart to hope in Him no matter what comes your way. And what He does is He moves these concepts, these rich biblical concepts of the Gospel, He moves them from being ideas that are up here to being steadfast hope that it keeps us alive down here. Listen to me as we meditate upon the faithfulness of God to us and the promises of the, of the Gospel we begin to understand the course by which the winding river of our lives has flowed. And we've seen that this winding river of hardship has actually become our servant, promising to empty us out into an ocean of awareness of God's nearness and faithfulness to us. And as we sort out the course of our lives and even the course of our church, church family, realizing that the ocean of God's blessing stands before us, we find one more thing that we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear our circumstances. We now reach this ocean of wonder that the meandering rivers of the promises of his work towards us have taken us down. Let me read verses 17 to 20 and then unfold how this promise is ours both for today and for tomorrow. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. 
I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. You know, in Christianity, in the gospel, we have many promises that are made to us that promise like ultimate fulfillment in eternity, yet they're able to transform us today. For example, the resurrection is a promise that one day the bondage of death will be loosed and we will enjoy resurrected bodies in the presence and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Death will not have the final word. But though this is a promise for tomorrow, it's something that we begin to taste today as God transforms our hearts with the hope of, a, of the resurrection. As, as what he does is he begins to loose that grip of sin that shackles sin and shackles of our broken world that they have upon us to give our hearts new life in him. In the same manner, verses 17 to 20 is a promise that will find its ultimate realization in God establishing the new heavens and the new earth that we will enjoy in that resurrected state. This state of eternal bliss where we will enjoy the pleasures of all of God's creation for all of eternity. Yet though we don't have that experience today, we have a foretaste of it in Christ and in the gospel. And so when we see, when we read like verse 17 says, that when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst... I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Brother and sister, in the fear of your heart, when your soul is parched in thirst and you feel as if you might die, know that God hears the prayers of His people. And He cannot... I'm not going to say he will not, that's true, but even deeper than will not, he cannot forsake those who are his. And then he provides whatever we need, wherever we are. For a desert traveler, water and shade are the two greatest needs. So imagine somebody stumbling, tripping over themselves as they meander through a hot desert Feeling as if extreme thirst and exposure to the brutal sun is going to be their death. And consider how those might be an illustration of the greatest things you fear as a follower of Christ. And then hear the promises of God. I will open the rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. And why does he do this? Verse 20 tells us that they may see and know. They may understand, consider and understand together. That the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. As your pastor, I do not pray that you would be protected from the trials of obedience to Christ. I pray that you would know the nearness of Christ. 
that we would consider and understand together the power of the gospel. Jesus Christ has made us his own and has called us his friends. I don't pray that God would protect our church from hardship or difficulty or threats from without or from within. I pray that the resounding song of our church family would be that the hand of the Lord has been with us. The Holy One of Israel has created us for His glory and we sing gladly by the power of His might. How carefully do you listen to the music? If you will listen carefully to the song of Isaiah 41. Perhaps it's a song of the message of Christ and of His gospel that you've heard before. But maybe you will find that like that cello that came alive, it will tune your heart away from fear and towards seeing our God and all that is ours in him. God is sovereign over world events. Whether it's your circumstances, whether it's threats from outside of those who are opposed to the message of Christ and of Christianity, or whether it's the person you see in the mirror every single day, You don't think he or she is strong enough or he or she has the ability to get through whatever the day holds. God is sovereign over world events. We can trust him with our fears. Let's pray. God, help our faith when it is small. Help our faith when it is small to see our Christ who is great. Help our hearts when they are fearful to see our God who has drawn near to us and made us his friend. And help us when we are fearful to not run to the idols of our hearts that we think will protect us, but to run to Christ who has already protected us who has already accomplished his redeeming work on the cross. He has met us in the greatest desert we could walk through, that desert of sin that must be addressed, and we are incapable of doing it. Help us to not fear. You were sovereign over world events, even to the point that you sent your son to be crucified at the hands of Roman authorities that we may look to him. And when fear meets us, we find Christ who is greater than these things. It's in his name we pray. Amen.